Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and reading again verses 1 to 6. To the choir master, the Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In 1955, the English clergyman and Bible translator J.B. Phillips published a book which is perhaps more uh, famous for its title than for its content. The book was entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. Psalm 139 is a corrective to any small views that we may have concerning the God of the Bible. It confronts us with a God who is omniscient. He is all-knowing. It confronts us with a God who is omnipresent. He is all-present. And it confronts us with a God who is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Over the next two Sundays, I want to walk through this psalm together. And as we do so, I hope that it will enlarge our views of who our God is and inspire our worship of him. This morning, we're looking at verses 1 to 6 under three headings. The Declaration the description, and then the delight. First, we have the declaration. You see that in verse 1, where David declares the Lord to be the God who knows him. David declares the Lord to be the God who knows him. As we come to this psalm, we can begin by focusing on its authorship. This is a psalm of David. It's a psalm that's been composed by a man who lived 900 years before the birth of Jesus. And this man is the king of Israel who is described as being a man after God's own heart. He is a God-centered man. He is a God-saturated man. He is a man who loves to see the Lord being praised, being prized, being prioritized. And the psalm has been composed for the choir master. This isn't a psalm for personal reflection or for private devotion. This is a psalm for public celebration. This is a psalm that is to be used in Israel's worship. It is a psalm that is to be sung by the choirs who met in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And right at the beginning of the psalm, David addresses his God. We read, O Lord. David opens by directing the attention of all who read this song and all who sing this song to the living God. He doesn't want the focus to be on himself doesn't want the focus to be on his circumstances. He wants the focus to be on the living God. And the God whom David addresses is the God whom he calls Lord. It's important that we understand that this word Lord isn't God's title. This is his personal name. The Hebrew word is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. But this word Lord is more than God's personal name. It is also his covenant name. He is the God who enters into covenants, into binding arrangements and relationships with his people where he promises them that he will be their God. And as they do so, he assures them that his name 
the name of the God whom they are entering into those covenants with, those binding relationships with, his name is the Lord Yahweh, the great I am. And having addressed his God, David makes this affirmation about him. We read verse 1, you have searched me and known me. David says that the Lord has searched him. That word search uh, conveys the idea of a thorough investigation, a very deep investigation, the idea of digging into something. And David says here that because the Lord has searched him, the Lord knows him. He has put David under the microscope, as it were. He has methodically and meticulously uh, examined David. He has left no stone unturned. And having been subjected to such an intensive examination, such an intensive investigation, David is now able to affirm, Lord, Lord, you have searched me, and because you have searched me, you know me. You know me. Friends, as we consider this verse, we can see that this psalm presents us with a personal God. This psalm dismisses and destroys any notions that we might entertain that the God of the Bible is an impersonal force. That the God of the Bible is some distant, detached deity. This psalm declares and demonstrates the truth that the God of the Bible is a personal God. He's a God who can be addressed. A God whom men and women can praise. A God whom men and women can pray to. He's a God who has a name. And it's a name that reflects his character. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. He is a God who enters into covenants. Binding relationships. Binding agreements with men and women whom he chooses. When he says... I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he's a God who knows his people. A God who doesn't rely on second-hand information about people, doesn't rely on second-hand reports about people. He's the God who searches his people, puts them under the microscope, and because he searches them, because he puts them under the microscope, he knows them. He knows them. Psalm 139 presents us with a personal God. And the question that I'm presenting to you today, friend, is do you know him? Do you know him personally and relationally? Have you committed yourself to him? Have you you covenanted yourself to him? Have you said to him, my Lord and my God? Did you recognize that he's not just some for some being out there, but rather he is your God. Well, this brings us second to the description. Look at verses 2 down to 5. David now provides a description of the Lord's extensive knowledge of him. In verses 2 down to 4, David draws their attention to the, the comprehensiveness of the Lord's knowledge. We need you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David claims that the Lord knows when he rises and when he sits. Verse 2. The Lord knows when he sits down, when he's relaxing, 
when he's resting, when he's reclining. But the Lord also knows when he rises up, when he gets his sleeves rolled up, when he puts his shoes on, when he's out and about, when he's at work. The Lord knows every posture, every position that David finds himself in. He knows when David is active and he knows when David is passive. And David continues and claims that the Lord knows his thoughts. Look again at verse 2. The Lord isn't simply aware of David's outward actions. The Lord is also aware of his thoughts, his internal emotions, his internal intentions that are behind every single action. And the Lord knows these thoughts, David says, from afar. Now that phrase, from afar, doesn't refer to spatial knowledge. David isn't saying, Lord, you are far away and you know my thoughts. No, as we'll see this evening, the Lord is very near. No, he's, David is saying here, he's speaking about temporal knowledge. He's saying, Lord, you knew my thoughts long ago. You knew my thoughts far away in years gone by. Before my thoughts were ever in my mind, you knew them, Lord. And David goes even further. And he claims that the Lord knows his path and is lying down. Verse 3, the Lord, the Lord knows his paths. Knows his journeys. He knows every place that David goes. And he doesn't simply know the places where David goes. He knows the reasons why David goes to those places. Think of that. Think of that. He, he knew when David went to fight Goliath and why David went to fight Goliath. And he knew when David went onto his palace roof to look at Bathsheba and why he went onto that palace roof. But he doesn't simply know David's paths, he also knows David's lying down, the place where he chooses to rest each evening. And David goes further still and he claims that the Lord knows all his ways. Verse 3 There is no place that David goes. There is no person that David deals with. There is no pain that David endures. There is no pleasure that David experiences. There is no plan that David devises. There is no promise that David makes that the Lord doesn't know about. David says here, everything about me, all of my ways, known to the Lord. And finally, David claims that the Lord knows his words before they are even on his tongue. Look at verse 4. He, he knows the things that David says. And he knows what David says even before David says it. And the reason why he knows what David is going to say is because he knows David's thoughts. And if he knows David's thoughts, then he knows what David is going to say, what is going to come out of his mind, what is going to come out of his heart. The Lord knows every carefully considered and crafted speech that David delivers. And he knows every unthinking word that he speaks in the heat of the moment. The Lord knows the things that David says. And he knows the things that David chooses to left to leave unsaid. He knows the things that David doesn't disclose to others. He knows what is going on when David bites his tongue and says to himself, I am not going to say what I want to say. I wonder, have you ever said that to someone? I've said it. You've said something to them like, I know what I would like to say to you, but I'm not going to say it. Well, the Lord knows exactly what David is going to say before he says it. 
And after drawing our attention to the comprehensiveness of the Lord's knowledge, David draws our attention to the consequences of that knowledge. Look at verse 5. You hem me in, behind and before, and, and lay your hand upon me. David says that the God who knows everything about him hems him in behind and before. Now, this is a very ambiguous term. It's not clear if what David is saying is positive or negative, and that is how we are to read it. If David has done something to be ashamed of, if he has evaded the Lord and embraced some secret sin, then the Lord's knowledge of him will stifle him. It will suffocate him. But if David has done nothing to be ashamed of, if he has been evading sin, if he has been embracing the Lord and his word and his ways and his will, then the Lord's knowledge of him won't stifle him. It won't suffocate him. It will be a source of security to him. It will be a source of satisfaction to him. But David isn't finished. As he says that the God who knows everything about him lays his hand upon him. And again, that is an ambiguous term where it's not clear if this is something positive or negative. The Lord's hand is a hand that can bless. But it's also, isn't it, a hand that can bruise. The Lord's hand will crush. It will lie heavily on those who have been wandering from him. That's what David says in Psalm 32. He feels so consumed with guilt. And he says, Lord, your hand is heavy on me. But the Lord's hand will also console and it will lift up those whom he knows have been walking with him. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that this psalm presents us with a God who knows everything about his people. He's the God who knows their outward actions and their inward dispositions. He's the God who knows everything that there is to know about every person in every place. He knows our moods and our motivations. He knows our fears and our frustrations. He knows our weaknesses and our worries. He knows our sorrows and our setbacks. There is nothing that we say. There is nothing that we do. And there is nothing that we think that is not known to this God. He knows the physical location, but also the spiritual condition of every person in every place at every time. He knows what we're like in public, when the eyes of everyone are on us. And he knows what we're like in private when we think that no one else is looking. I, I've heard my brother say to me on occasion, do you really think that people would listen to you if they knew what you're like in the living room of your own house? He knows what I can be like at times. I can, I can put on a front for a congregation, but sometimes in private I can be a real disaster zone. And you're the same. No offense. We can, we can put on a front and make everyone think that we're great in public, but in private we think to ourselves, I am just a bit of a disaster zone. But the Lord knows it all. He knows it all. There is nothing about us that's concealed to him. There is nothing about us that is unknown to him. He knows the secret sins that we're quietly entertaining. He knows the deplorable deeds that we have hidden and that we have tried to banish and blot out from our minds and our memories. He knows it, but he also knows the good that we've done. The things that nobody else knows about. The things that we ourselves don't know about. He, he knows it. 
The God of the Bible is a God who knows everything about every person. When I was applying for the ministry, I had to have interviews with Kirk Sessions, and then with Presbyteries, and then with the Board of Ministry. And I remember Kenny MacLeod, the minister in Thursday, saying to me one day, Hugh, you're going to be the most examined man on the face of the earth at the end of this process. It, it was awful. I felt like there wasn't one bit of my life that people didn't know about. But at the end of these four years of exams and interviews, there were still things about me that these men knew nothing about. But there is nothing about me that the God of the Bible, the God of Psalm 139, doesn't know. He's the God who knows everything about every person in every place. And the amazing thing, friends, and I hope you get this today, I hope you take this on board, the amazing thing is that this God wants a covenant relationship with those whom he knows the very best about, but also the very worst about. I wonder, have you ever experienced the breakdown of a friendship or the breakdown of a relationship because your friend or your loved one found out something about you? And they said, we cannot continue on in this relationship. We cannot continue on in this friendship. Or I wonder, have you ever held back from telling someone something about yourself because you're afraid of what they'll think about you, what they'll do with you, if if they knew what you're really like? Today this psalm presents us with a God who knows everything about us. Even the things that we would prefer to keep concealed. The things we prefer to keep hidden. The things we prefer to keep undisclosed. And this same God invites each of us through the preaching of his gospel, the message of his blood-bought salvation, the good news of his full and free grace to guilty sinners in Christ Jesus to come to him. Doesn't that take your breath away? This God knows the things about you that you wouldn't disclose to your husband or wife. Never mind the Kirk session, never mind the presbytery. This God knows everything about you and he still says, come, come to me. What an encouragement this should be if you're sitting here today feeling spiritually shipwrecked. Feeling like a disappointment to the Lord. You're sitting here today and you've backslidden and you're ashamed of something you've thought, something that you've done, something that you've said. What an encouragement this should be if you're sitting here today thinking to yourself, I don't know if I could ever become a Christian because of my past, because of my baggage, because of my background. Friends, this God knows it all and he says, come, come. And you know what, friends, because this God says, come, so should we as a congregation. Whatever we know about a person, we should say, come. Third and finally, we have the delight, verse 6. David now expresses his odd delight in the Lord's knowledge of him. His odd delight in the Lord's knowledge of him. Up until now, we've heard David reflecting on the Lord's knowledge. He has declared the Lord to be the God who has searched him and known him. And he has described the all-encompassing, comprehensive scope of the Lord's knowledge of him. The Lord knows his sitting down and his rising up. Knows his thoughts, knows his paths, knows the places where he lies down. Knows all his ways, even knows his words before he speaks them. 
And now after reflecting on the Lord's comprehensive knowledge, we find David rejoicing in that knowledge. Look at verse 6. We read, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David begins by saying that the Lord's knowledge is wonderful to him. This all-encompassing, comprehensive knowledge is a knowledge that produces awe, astonishment, amazement in David. It's too wonderful for him. He, He can't get his head around it. And David continues by saying that the Lord's knowledge is too high for him to attain. That word high uh, often referred to a military uh, fortress that was on a high cliff or on a steep mountain. A fortress that was inaccessible. A fortress that was impenetrable, impregnable. And here we find David saying, I don't have the power. I don't have the physical power, don't have the mental power, don't have the spiritual power to scale the vast heights of my God's knowledge. It's beyond his ability to fathom. Quite simply, the God who can fully comprehend David cannot be comprehended by David. The God who can fully comprehend David cannot be comprehended by David. He recognises that he doesn't possess the same knowledge as the Lord has of himself or of others. But he also recognises that he doesn't even have the ability to to understand or even describe the Lord's knowledge. This is a a wonderful knowledge. This is a, a high knowledge. Friends, as we consider this verse, we can see that this psalm directs us to the place of praise. The place of doxology. The place of worship. The closing verse of this psalm presents us with a man, with David, who is, who is lost in wonder, awe and praise as he tries to comprehend the vast, incomprehensible knowledge of his God. And that is where we should be led and left at the close of these opening six verses. I wonder, have you ever been confronted with something or someone and, and you could hardly describe it? You could hardly put it into words. All you could do was marvel. That's where these verses of this psalm take us. This study of God's all-encompassing, comprehensive knowledge should leave each of us lost in wonder, awe and praise. This study of God's all-encompassing, comprehensive knowledge should explode our minds and excite our hearts and give us a greater, grander, more glorious vision of who our God is so that we will be inspired to engage in a greater, grander, more glorious worship of His name. This study of God's all-encompassing, comprehensive knowledge should leave us sane with David Such knowledge is too wonderful to me, I cannot attain it. Or as the Apostle Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 
Well, this morning I want to close by asking the question, does the truth of God's all-encompassing, comprehensive knowledge, the truth of God's omniscience, leave you astounded, amazed, awed? I think it's a tragic thing. When a Christian comes to a place of worship and they go away shrugging their shoulders saying, that's it. Does the truth of God's all-encompassing comprehensive knowledge take our breath away? Does it thrill our hearts that we, friends, can engage in the public worship and celebration of this God on this day that he has set aside for his worship. This is a God, friends, who is not to be studied. This is a God who is to be delighted in.